The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. Welcome to Westway. I'm John. I'm one of the pastors here. Some of y'all are acting like you've never seen a suit before. Um, I would love for you to open your Bibles uh, with me to Mark chapter 16. You can also follow along if you have a, the Bible app on your phone, Uversion's Bible app. You can follow along in that app um, as well. And you should know that today we are just reading and talking about the short ending from Mark uh, chapter 8 through verse, uh, through verse 8. Um, in our version event today, what you'll find is, um, if you scroll down to the bottom, you'll see a, an online resource page. And one of the resources that we provided on that page, if you just click on that, you can learn more about like why are there multiple endings of the book of Mark. Um, and that's that's good homework uh, for you this week for you to study and research. Uh, we here at Westway have been going through the Gospel of Mark now uh, for the last 12 weeks. And for 15 chapters, Mark has been telling us the story of Jesus. He's used words and phrases like then and after and one day and Jesus went and immediately. And he's doing these things as transitions in the story to move the pace along, to move the story along, to speed it towards its conclusion. And Mark, Mark has told so many stories, and I'm sure you felt this when we were reading through it together. Mark has told so many stories that it's easy to feel lost in the story. It's easy to feel a little bit disoriented. The way we talk about that here, especially in a book like Mark, is we're not going to talk about all of the things in the book. We're going to talk about some of the things that you wish we wouldn't. We're not going to talk about what you wish we would. And Mark's gospel is designed um, in that way. Jesus is always moving in the Gospel of Mark. And just when we think we have it figured out, well, we, we think we know what Jesus is doing, Jesus has already moved on to the next town. Just as the disciples are reeling from, from Jesus controlling the wind and the waves, they get out of the boat on the other side, and this demon-possessed man comes up shrieking and screaming, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of God? There's a lot of chaos in the gospel of Mark. And again, this is, this is on purpose. This is designed to have us wrestle with this question, who is Jesus? And there are a couple of times when we've seen that. Who is this Jesus that teaches with such authority? Who do you think you are forgiving sins? Why don't you fast like we do? Why don't your disciples wash their hands like they're supposed to? Prove yourself. If you are who you say you are, do something fantastic. Do a miracle. Cause something to happen. Who gives you the right to come into the temple and turn over all the tables of the money changers? Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Are you the king of the Jews? See, these questions are all designed to prompt us to ask the question, who is Jesus? The entire book is designed in that way. And there are lots of answers. I spent part of my day yesterday going through the entire gospel of Mark and taking notes and writing down like, how does what happens in this story describe who Jesus is? How does what this person uh, say, how does that describe who Jesus is? And if you ha want some homework, which I know we all want homework from church, 
I would suggest to you to spend time in Mark and see how that question gets answered. I came up with about 100 things, and I'm sure I missed many of them. You'll see my list also in the version event this morning. One of the things that I've been urging you to do as we've been reading through Mark's gospel is pay attention to the transitions between chapters. Mark is trying to set us up with what happens next. So speaking of transitions, this past Sunday night, we saw the video earlier. This past Sunday night, or past Friday night, we talked about the death, burial of Jesus. It's our context for Mark 16. But here's how Mark 15 ends. So again, Jesus has been crucified. Jesus is dead. I want you to not miss that part of the story. At the end of Mark 15, Jesus is dead. He's not, he's not swooning in this, in this really low power state where he's going to rally over Saturday and then wake up on Sunday morning. Jesus is dead on Friday. This is Mark 15, beginning at verse 42. This all happened on Friday, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. As evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea took a risk and went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Joseph was an honored member of the high council, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead, so he called for the Roman officer and asked if he had died yet. The officer confirmed that Jesus was dead. Remember, Jesus is dead. These are professional Roman soldiers. They are professional killers. When they say that Jesus is dead, that means he's dead. The officer confirmed that Jesus was dead, so Pilate told Joseph he could have the body. Joseph brought, bought a long sheet of linen cloth. Then he took Jesus' body down from the cross, wrapped it in the cloth, and laid it in a tomb that had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone in front of the entrance. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body was laid. So Jesus' body is taken off of the cross by Joseph of Arimathea, and it's wrapped in a cloth, and it is laid into a tomb. And Joseph taking the body is accomplishing a couple of different things here that we need to talk about for a second. Number one, it allowed the, the Jewish law to be followed that bodies were not allowed to be left out after sunset. They weren't allowed to be left out overnight. This is in Deuteronomy. The second thing is it guaranteed that Jesus' disciples would not receive Jesus' body. Remember, in the weeks and the months leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be crucified, but I'm coming back in three days. Right? So there would have been this little rumor mill that Jesus was going to be resurrected. So what would happen if, if Jesus' body was released to the disciples? Well, they could stage a resurrection, right? They could say, we don't have his body. We don't know what happened to him. He's been resurrected. So Joseph taking the body was a guarantee that no one can say the body was taken by his disciples. 
Pay close attention to verse 47. I'm going to read it again. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body was laid. I think that's a sentence that's loaded with meaning. We don't know whether they looked into the tomb itself when Jesus' body was placed in there, but we can infer by what we're going to read in a moment that they knew that Jesus was in the tomb. I have a graphic that I'd like to share with you. It's going to be on the screen. I'm going to walk over here so you can kind of see what this is. You don't have to follow me, Nathan. So this is what a tomb in the time of Jesus would have looked like. We've got the stone here. We've got the entrance. And we've got this pit. And on the right, right here, you'll see the body placed on the bench for burial preparation. So here's what would happen. They would put Jesus' body or they would put the body of the person who's going into this tomb on that bench. And then they would come in a few days later and they would anoint the body. We're going to talk more about this in a second. So that body would be anointed. And then they would, they would put the body into one of these slots. The word there says K-O-K-H. They would put the body into one of these slots. And the body would stay there for about a year. About a year in, someone would go into the tomb. They would take what was left of the body out. They would wash all of the bones in wine. And then they would put it into a box called an ossuary. And then they would take that box... And then they would put it back in the tomb. And then they would put the next box in the tomb. And then they would put the next box in the tomb. So this kind of answers some questions um, for us about why, why were the women going there to anoint the body? What were they doing? What was taking place? Let's read, continue in verse, chapter 16, verse 1. Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. So as I'm reading through this text, I'm asking myself a question. Maybe you've had it as you read through this. Why would they, want, why would they need to anoint a dead body? What's, what's the purpose of that? Well, like I just explained to you, they're going to anoint it before they bury it. Well, why would they do that? Because, see, this, this outer tomb is going to be used time and time and time again as they prepared other bodies to place into these slots while they're waiting for that year to be up so they can take the body out, wash it, and put it in the box. So imagine what a tomb filled with rotting human beings would smell like. So they're anointing these bodies so that when they go in to do these things, they can can deal with the task. They can focus on what what they were supposed to be doing there for, for burial, for preparation for burial. And here's the third reason why the women did this. Um, They were clearly not anticipating an empty tomb. So again, we need to remember that, that Jesus died on that Friday. So when they go to the tomb on Sunday morning, they are anticipating a dead body. They are anticipating the corpse of Jesus. Let's read verses 2 and 3 from chapter 16. 
Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went out to the tomb. On the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? Again, they are anticipating Jesus' dead body in the tomb. Their concern is who's going to roll away the stone. That's what they're worried about. This was not an excited walk. The women were not filled with joy and happiness on the way to the tomb that morning. As a pastor, I've, I've had the opportunity to be with people on a walk like that. I have had the opportunity to be with people who are going to see the deceased body of their loved one for the very first time. And I can tell you, it is absolutely gut-wrenching. This is the space of the women. They're worried about who's going to roll the stone away. This is verse 4. But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. So imagine their disorientation for a moment. You know that Jesus was in a certain place at a certain time and the stone was covering the tomb and they come walking up to that very same tomb and all of a sudden the stone is rolled away. Imagine their confusion. Imagine their disorientation. Let's read verses, verse five. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. Let's put this graphic back up for a second. When we last, when they last saw Jesus, he is right there. He's on the right side, about to be prepared for burial. Like that's, that's what they're expecting. They get to the tomb, the, the stone is rolled away, they stick their heads in, and instead of seeing the dead body of Jesus, they find someone sitting there in the whitest of clothing. Imagine their shock at this point. Imagine their disorientation at this point. They're probably asking questions like, is this the right tomb? They're probably asking questions like, is this even the right cemetery? Right? Like, what, what is going on here? Where's the body? What is happening? Let's read verses 6 and 7. I'll start right at the end of five. The women were shocked, but the angel said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You'll see him there just as he told you before he died. Now, we don't know much about this man in white. Other gospels say that he's an angel. We don't know much about him, but I think we can say one thing is absolutely true about this man. He was never married. And here's how we know that. Husbands, have you ever told your wife to calm down? <laughs> have you ever told two emotionally fragile women at the same time to calm down and not be alarmed? That has never worked for me. 
and I suggest to you that you not do that. Just some marriage advice for you this morning. But I want you to notice, I want you to notice how, how this man like reorients the mindset of the women. Okay? They walk up, they see the stone is rolled away, they're already disoriented. They stick their heads in the tomb, and now the body is not there, and there's a guy sitting there. This is what Jesus, this is what this man is essentially saying. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who's crucified. You're in the right tomb. I imagine in other gospels tell us this, that, that when they looked in, they saw the, the, the cloth that Jesus was wrapped in. They saw it neatly folded at the end of that little bench. I imagine when this man is talking about this, like this is where Jesus was. I imagine he held up the burial cloth. Go tell the disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going to Galilee. You'll find him there. That little side comment, including Peter, is really important for us today. And it's where I want to spend the rest of my time together with you this morning. I want you to remember that, that it is likely Peter who was the source of this gospel. I want you to remember that Mark was, was Peter's interpreter as Peter was on the mission field. Mark and Peter worked closely together. So over a period of time, probably 30 years, Mark heard Peter telling these stories over and over and over again. Over a period of time, probably for 30 years, Mark heard Peter preach these stories over and over and over again. But Peter isn't just the source of this gospel. He plays a key part in it. Again, I went through and found some things that Peter did according to this gospel. Peter and his brother Andrew were the first two disciples called by Jesus. It was Peter's mother-in-law whom Jesus healed from a fever. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus is trying to get away from the crowd, so he's off praying by himself, when Simon, also known as Peter, and the other disciples go out to find him. It's Peter in Mark chapter 8 who identifies Jesus as the Messiah, and it's Peter just a few verses later who rebukes Jesus and is called Satan by him. It's Peter who wants to build the three shelters on the top of the mountain during the transfiguration. You remember we talked about that? Moses was there, Elijah was there, and it's Peter who wants to build these shelters. It's Peter who told Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you. It's Peter who said emphatically, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. And then a few minutes later, he says, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. See, this is Peter. According to John's gospel, it's Peter who slashes off the ear of the servant of the high priest when they're in the garden. It was Peter who denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. It was Peter who fled the scene, weeping bitterly, overcome by guilt and shame. And now Peter is included in with the other disciples in this instruction for the women to go and tell all the disciples, even Peter, including Peter, especially Peter. You have to get Peter. You have to include Peter. 
I'm going to meet them in Galilee. And I think this is the most hopeful of all of the texts out of Mark's gospel, chapter 16. Because it shows us God's heart of compassion for his people. Not just his people, but for all people. See, the same heart of compassion was shown to Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus didn't heal the man with leprosy just because he had to. Like sometimes we think that the reason Jesus does things is because he has to. Jesus loves me because he has to. After all, he loves everyone. That text tells us that Jesus was willing. Jesus is willing to love you. Jesus is willing to save you. Jesus is willing to serve you. Jesus doesn't have to do anything he wants to. We saw this heart of compassion when the man was lowered to the roof. And Jesus healed the man's spiritual brokenness before he dealt with his physical brokenness. See, that's love. That's the heart of compassion. We saw this heart of compassion when Jesus allowed his disciples to eat the heads off of grain as they're walking through the fields on the Sabbath. And then when the Pharisees come along and they are angry with Jesus and they're angry with Jesus' disciples, Jesus defends what his disciples do. There are dozens of these stories in the Gospel of Mark. And if you want some more homework... I would, I would ask you, I would encourage you to go through the gospel of Mark and look at all of the ways that God's heart of compassion for his people shines through. Read them, study them, learn them. It's out of that heart of compassion that Jesus included Peter. The one who cursingly rejected him. The one who denied Jesus in that crucial moment. See, this is when we remember that the Bible is not written to us, but it's written for us. We can, we can contextualize Paul's words when he says that all scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. We can read this story and we can see that God is trying to communicate something to us. These words are telling us that it is out of God's heart of compassion that he is including you. He is offering to include you, to join with the disciples, to seek him out, to go to where he is today. And see, we don't have to go to Galilee to find Jesus. The disciples, they had to go to Galilee to find Jesus. We don't have to go to Galilee to find Jesus. This is one reason that, that the gathering of believers is so important. Because when Christians gather together in one place, we actually get to experience the presence of Jesus through one another. That's why the gathering matters. That's why what we do here on a Sunday, not just on Easter Sunday, but each and every Sunday matters because in that gathering, we get to experience the presence of Jesus. And then we also, again, contextualizing what Paul says elsewhere in Scripture we see Mark's gospel written as an example and a warning. See, what, what we're reading today, what we're hearing today, isn't just something for us to read and intellectually assent to. Do you know what I mean by that? It's like where I read this text and I kind of agree with what it's saying. Yep, Jesus was on the cross, 
He died. Three days later, he was resurrected. I'm down with that. I believe that happened. See, that's an intellectual assent. And it's fine, but it doesn't do anything as far as transformation. It doesn't actually do anything as far as being in a relationship with God. It doesn't actually resolve the, the sin problem that each and every one of us, that Jesus came to fix. It's just an agreement. And I, I know this all too well, and, and maybe you've heard like me tell my story, but there was a period of time, many years, where where Anne and I, we intellectually assented with everything the, God, the Bible said. We agreed with it. We thought it was a really good way to live our lives. It just didn't actually change anything about us. Because we just intellectually assented it, to it. See, Jesus was born, lived, served, and then died for your sins and for mine. And he was raised from the dead. Not, not for some parlor trick. Not for some magical thing that people could point to, but to demonstrate that new life is only offered through him. And you too can have that. See, I wonder what it would be like for you today as you're reading through Mark and you read Mark 16. Now go and tell his disciples, including your name, that Jesus is going ahead of you. You'll see him there. You can go meet him. You can go in there into a relationship with him. Like, this is for you. This isn't just some 2,000-year-old book. This is for you. You can have that new life. And that sounds really easy. It sounds too easy. Ultimately, it sounds ridiculous to us that all we have to do to be saved, to have new life, is to go and find Jesus. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? Because of the way that we've constructed what we think faith is about. Because of the way that we have constructed what we think it means to be in a relationship with God. And when we read through the Gospel of Mark, as we've done over the last 12 weeks, we've seen that being in a relationship with God is nothing like any of those people thought. And my guess is if you're not a follower of Christ today... If you're not actually a Christian, again, I, it doesn't matter whether you intellectually assent to it. If you're not actually a Christ follower, I would submit to you that you have no idea what it means to actually be in a relationship with Christ. Because if these men and women didn't know, how can you? And that sounds easy, but what you have to do is just go meet him where he is. That's it. Just go meet him when he, where he is. And then when you meet him, what you're going to find is something amazing. You have to give up your own way. You have to take up your cross and you have to follow him. See, that's what it means for us to be actually in a relationship with Christ. That's the difference between someone who just intellectually assents that Jesus is who he said he is and someone who's actually living their life for Jesus. The difference is, what am I doing with my life? How am I spending my time? How am I spending my effort? How am I spending my energy? How am I spending my money? How am I spending my relationships? How am I spending myself? Am I giving up my own way? Am I following Christ? Have I taken up my cross? 
And with that choice, I think when we choose to not go to him, we can sign ourselves to a life-seeking mission and purpose. Here's what I mean by that. To not follow Christ, to not accept the offer that he is making to each one of us, is to consign you to try to, try to find meaning and purpose and affirmation and approval and all of those things through every other way. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have lived in the same space for the, for the last 10 years of your life. You've constantly been telling yourself, if I can just get this, I'll be happy. If I can just do that, I'll be happy. If I can just get this person to say something nice about me, my life will be fulfilled. And do you notice that's always a moving target? See, the minute you hit that thing, you are looking for the next thing. This is human nature. We are meant to be fulfilled. Did you know that? We are meant to live life. Only the life that we are meant to live is the life that's offered through Jesus Christ. Or you can just go to Jesus. You can have the life that he is actually making available to you right now. And that doesn't mean that you're still not going to have hardship. After all, it is a cross we are taking up. Not a little gold chain, right, to remind us of that. But what Jesus is calling us to do, what he's calling his followers to do, what he's calling those who would be his disciples to do, is actually give up their own way. And take up their cross and follow Jesus and live. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke, that means teaching. Take my yoke, take my teaching upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you'll find rest for your souls. Maybe this choice that we're talking about leaves you confused. Maybe this choice leaves you a little disoriented, possibly because I've just named your problem in a way that no one else has. Well, I want you to know that you're in good company. See, Mark 16, 8 says this. When Mary, Mary, and Salome left the tomb that day, they were trembling and bewildered. And they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. See, if that's you, you're in good company. If you're unsure of what your next step is, you're in good company. And Mark's gospel is an invitation for us to participate with them in this story. To wrestle through it and to proclaim it as true. These three women are the first three people who are going to ever tell anyone that Jesus had been Resurrected. Could you imagine what that must have been like for them? Can you imagine how they're, they're trembled and they're bewildered and they're confused? But don't you think underneath all of that, they're extremely excited? Imagine what it must have been like to go to the tomb that morning looking for a body and instead finding none. Not because his body had been spirited away by the disciples. Not because he was only sleeping and he rallied on Saturday. 
but because he had been resurrected and he was waiting for them in Galilee. My hope and my prayer for you is that you will seek Jesus while he still may be found because he is waiting for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that comes through your son, Jesus. Thank you that he was risen from the dead. Thank you that history confirms that. The bottom line is there is no body. We thank you that you have offered us new life. I pray for those who are trembling and bewildered and confused that they would look to you and find security. I pray for those who are constantly seeking affirmation, who are constantly seeking approval, who are constantly seeking happiness and joy for the next thing. God, I pray that they would never find that satisfaction outside of you. I pray in the, in the most graceful way I possibly can that they would be thwarted at every turn, that the millisecond they get what they thought they needed to be happy, they would just be wrecked because happiness and joy doesn't come from those things. It comes from your son, Jesus. And I pray that everyone in this room would know and experience that. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.